morning, church. Our Bible reading today is coming from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And the word of God reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Well, do please um, keep that passage open in front of you. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Heavenly Father, it is no small matter to have your word in our hands this morning. Please help us not to read it casually, or carelessly, or complacently, but rather to read it humbly, reverently, and obediently, for Christ's sake. Amen. Relationships, a mess worth making. Uh, that is the rather arresting title uh, of a book by Paul Tripp and Tim Lane, who are two of the better Christian authors writing today. And uh, here's how they introduce their message, and I think this will appear for you on the screen. From time to time, most of us hit points in our relationships when we wonder if they're worth it. A wife decides it's not worth opening up to her husband anymore. An employee goes to work, shuts his door, and only comes out again when it's time to go home. A teenager comes home from school and goes to his room until his parents plead with him to join the family for dinner. Someone drops out of home group because they don't think it's worth the hassle. Family gatherings are reduced to people sharing the same geographical space but lacking any meaningful relationship. 
The church meeting becomes a formality in which there is little or no attempt to share in the lives of others. Well, whether or not you, you recognize yourself in any of those situations, I'm sure we can all agree that when it comes to relationships, all of us are wearing L-plates. We know that our relationships matter to Almighty God, uh, but so often we feel greatly discouraged at our lack of progress and even actually overwhelmed by the amount of work they seem to require. Now in those moments, where can we as Christian people go for hope and for strength to persevere? Well, in the book I mentioned, Paul Tripp shows us there is only one place to go. Let me read to you what he says. Quote, The shattered relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship ever suffered more than what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit endured when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken friend so that we could have loving friendships. Jesus was willing to be the rejected Lord so that we could live in loving submission to one another. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken brother, so that we could have godly relationships. End quote. Now, I started with this because it is, of course, the same perspective we find in this section of Ephesians. Uh, so just to put it in context, we've learned, haven't we, that at the end of history... God is going to bring everything together under the rule of the Lord Jesus, chapter 1. In the meantime, we are called to tell the world about the ultimate broken relationship, uh, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that was broken at the cross and in which there was more pain, more hurt than any of us can possibly imagine or will ever have to experience. But we don't stop there because we go on to tell the world that God has used his own suffering to reconcile us to himself and to one another. And we tell the world that when we respond to his offer of reconciliation, that God makes us spiritually alive, he makes us into new people, and he brings us into a new community that is absolutely unique. And it's in this new community, uh, the local church, where we start to put this reconciliation into practice in all our relationships with one another. And I say that we, we start to do this because the truth is that we're all still learning. Uh, all of us still make mistakes, lots of them. But if we're Christians, we also know that a loving Heavenly Father has already forgiven all of our relationship mess-ups, past, present, 
and future. And that, I think, is a wonderfully liberating reality. It's actually where we find the courage to persevere at the difficult relationships in our lives. But it's even better than that, because through the Apostle Paul, God has given us his blueprint, his pattern, for us to follow in our relationships. And as we follow that pattern in willing obedience, God comes to us by his Spirit, strengthening us to walk it out. What is the blueprint? Well, we saw it, didn't we, for the first time a couple of weeks ago, back in chapter 5 and verse 21, which says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then immediately after that command, Paul shows us what that looks like in three pairs of relationships. Uh, each relationship is characterized by submission to certain people to whom God has delegated, delegated special authority. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw that this authority is not like the world's authority. It's not oppressive. Uh, it's not self-serving. No, in each case, this authority is to be used for the benefit of the person over whom it is exercised. It must never be abused. Authority is never a license for tyranny. And so... We saw, didn't we, that wives submit to their husbands, but at the same time, husbands exercise their authority by loving and cherishing and caring for their wives. And now this morning, we find two more sets of relationships, which we're going to look at under just two headings this morning. Number one, godly relationships at home. And number two, godly relationships at work. So firstly then, godly relationships at home. Come with me please to chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Where Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, the first thing I want you to notice there is that Paul is addressing the children directly. He's not speaking to the parents, instructing them to pass on the message to the children later. He's actually assuming that children would be sitting in church when Ephesians was read out. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds rather stressful. No doubt children were much the same then as they are today. Uh, we don't know how long they can possibly sit still without fidgeting or fighting. But I take it that the early church believed this was really important. Important for all members of the family to hear the same word and to be thinking about how it applied practically to their family situation. I think that's a massive lesson for families today, right there. But please also keep in mind the gospel principle that lies behind the command in verse 1. You see, the command to children 
is not kind of a random idea that uh, Paul dreamed up to make family life just a little bit more enjoyable. No, the gospel principle behind verse 1 is that the Christian home is to reflect the hierarchy of relationships that broke down at the fall, but which has now been redeemed through the gospel. So you see, in the Christian home, the Lord Jesus Christ rules. And he delegates his authority to the head of the family. Then, father and mother, under the headship of the man, are in authority over the children who are to obey their parents. Now, the word obey there in the original is a very important word. Uh, In the Greek, it's a combination of two other words, one of them meaning to listen, and the other word meaning under. So the idea here, you see, is that children listen to their parents with the intention of understanding what they're saying, and then they willingly put themselves under or submit to the authority of their words by actually doing them. Of course, this is where all children struggle. Um, As a small boy, my parents told me not to play with matches. Uh, Immediately, the command not to play with matches aroused in my mind some curiosity. What's so special about matches, I wondered. And uh, when their back was turned, I experimented with the living room curtains with disastrous results. So you see, the point is we need more than the command. We need to know why children are to obey their parents. What motivates their obedience? Paul gives two reasons. The first, and this is a fresh thought I think for most of us, is that during the years of a child's minority, that means when they get up to the age of 18 or 21 or whatever it is, Parents represent God to their children. I suggest to you that that is a wake-up call for parents who like to think of themselves as being their children's buddy or friend or mate. Where do we find that in the text? Come with me to verse 2, where Paul, in verse 2, quotes commandment number 5, the fifth commandment, Honour your father and mother. Now, it's very easy, isn't it, to read that and say, yeah, I know that. I'm just going to let my eyes slide over it. And if we do that, we miss the big point. We just need to pause on this for a moment and make sure that we're all tracking with the Apostle Paul when he says that. Because, you see, traditionally, when Christians today think of the Ten Commandments, what we do is we think of the first four commandments as being all about our duty to Almighty God. And then we understand the next six to be defining our duty to neighbour. And therefore, the way we think today, commandment number five is at the top of the second table as part of our duty to neighbour. That's what most people think today. Paul wasn't thinking like that at all. Giovanni's listening. The Jews taught that the Ten Commandments were actually given 
on two tablets of five commandments each. You with me? So they understood that the fifth commandment for children to honour their parents is actually on the first tablet and is therefore part of their duty to Almighty God. Now that is God's design for relationships at home. The parents mediate the authority and love of God to their children and the children obey their parents as if they were obeying God himself. So think about this. The way that a child responds to his or her parents is an indicator of the way they're thinking about God. Is that a fresh thought? So when Luke, in his Gospel, uh, tells us that as a boy, the Lord Jesus was obedient to his parents, he's actually saying a great deal more than that Jesus was exceptionally well-mannered. No, he's saying that Jesus' obedience to Mary and Joseph signified his obedience to God. And in that sense, Jesus was providing an example for all children to follow. So that's the first motive. The second motive for the child's obedience to his parents, notice this, is that it affects how well and possibly how long a child might live. See, verse 2 commands children... Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. What's the promise, verse 3? So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, what's he saying? Now, obviously, Paul is not there stating a universal truth. We all know, don't we, that children can die early regardless of whether they've been obedient to their parents or not. But the general rule of life is that children who obey their parents live longer and live better. Why is that? Well, negatively, they learn to, to avoid the bad habits and the disastrous relationships that can so easily ruin and shorten a person's life. So, for example, they learn that setting fire to the living room curtains really is a bad idea. Mum and Dad were right about that after all, and uh, I've never done anything like it since. Positively, by obeying their parents, children learn the healthy disciplines and values that leads to peace and harmony in the home and then in all of their relationships throughout the rest of their lives. And you see, in many cases, the, the people who learn those things in childhood really do live longer. So God places all children under an obligation to obey their parents. But there's a balance because God places an equally important obligation on parents. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Uh, the New English Bible translate, 
translates verse 4 as, do not provoke them. So we fathers are not to abuse our parental authority. We mustn't be harsh, uh, we mustn't be cruel, we mustn't have favourites. And the reason for that, of course, is that children are persons in their own right. Uh, They are God's image bearers, just as we are. So they're to be respected, they're not to be pushed down or exploited. So why then has God given fathers authority over their children? Well, verse 4 tells us that we are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And the phrase bring them up there literally means to nourish them. We are to nourish them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, The reformer John Calvin translates verse 4 like this. Let them, the children, be fondly cherished. And uh, Calvin goes on to emphasize that the overall tone that God expects from fathers is gentleness and friendliness, but never to be confused with weakness or as an excuse for not following up on our responsibilities. Because verse 4 says that this nourishing involves the training and instruction of the Lord. Paul's obviously talking about spiritual instruction and moral discipline. And he's saying that God expects fathers to instruct their children in the word of God so that they not only understand it, but they actually obey it. It's a very challenging responsibility. We fathers need to understand that the direction of our children's lives really does depend on whether we accept that responsibility or we abdicate. And I want to give you two illustrations to prove the point, one of them positive and the other one negative. The positive example concerns a rather eccentric American clergyman by the name of Daddy Hall. Uh, In 1945, he founded a ministry called St. Paul's House, which uh, trains Christian workers to serve the poor in an area of New York known as Hell's Kitchen. Uh, As the name suggests, it's one of the most dangerous and depressing areas in the city of New York. Uh, I looked it up yesterday, and St. Paul's House is still going strong, offering food, clothing, shelter, and gospel instruction to people who otherwise would have absolutely no hope. Daddy Hall was actually a man of incredible passion and energy because he also used to hold open-air services, gospel services, on the streets of New York's financial services district, where eventually the the bankers and the stockbrokers used to call him the Bishop of Wall Street. Now the question is, what shaped a man, him, for such an extraordinary ministry. Well, in Daddy Hall's biography, he describes his childhood like this. Quote, it's rather amusing. He says, I was brought up at the knee of a godly father and across the knee of a determined mother. 
So there was both discipline and instruction. She gave me the stripes, and I saw the stars. So I had them both together, much to my dismay and discomfort. The neighbours must have thought there was murder going on in the hall house, but it was only my mother impressing her opinion on me in several well-known spots. I think it was her discipline and strong, decisive ways that placed me where I am today. Now we smile at that, but it makes a serious point, doesn't it? There was both discipline and instruction in his childhood, and it set him on course for a useful and rewarding life. For the negative example, please open your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 3. From verse 11. And you'll remember the context that uh, while Samuel was still a small boy, God spoke to him at night concerning Eli. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They had been abusing their position as priests in the house of God. Everybody knew about it. And we pick up the story at 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Now, very interestingly, the word restrain there is the same as the word instruct in Ephesians chapter 6. So, have you got the pattern? Eli failed to instruct his sons. That is, he failed not simply to teach them the will of God, but he failed to teach them in such a way that they were motivated to obey it. And in the end, God destroyed them. So godly relationships at home look like children obeying their parents and fathers and mothers nourishing their children with systematic spiritual instruction and moral discipline. Then the second set of relationships in our passage this morning concerns godly relationships at work. And uh, here, verses 5 to 9 deal with relationships between slaves and masters. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that's not really our situation, Simon, so move on. That's not quite right. For a start, in the first century, slaves were absolutely central to the economy. 
Uh, at the time that Paul wrote Ephesians, there were about 60 million slaves uh, in the Roman Empire. They made up about a third of the population, um, especially uh, predominant in cities like Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. And without them, the economy would quite literally have ground to a halt. And because the slaves were so very important to the economy, there had been significant reforms in the way that slaves were treated in the Roman Empire. So one commentator says that Roman slavery in the first century was actually way more humane and civilized than it was in North America 1,700 years later. That's quite a striking thought, isn't it? So although the parallels between slaves and employees aren't exact, there are enough similarities for us to be able to apply Paul's teaching here with absolute confidence. And as with relationships at home, there is a gospel principle behind Paul's commands. Always important when you come across a command in the Bible, look for the principle that lies behind it. The principle is that if you are a Christian employee, then you've been given a totally new perspective. You've been set free from being simply a wage slave and from working simply to keep the boss happy. And now, when you're at work, you are working for Christ. And I want you to notice the tremendous importance that Paul attaches to this. Or can we look down at verse 5? Verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, obey them as slaves of Christ. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Verse 8, you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. Now somebody might be thinking, well those, you know, sounds marvellous, but they're just nice words. Do they really make a difference? Samuel Chadwick was a uh, distinguished Methodist minister at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, he was converted at the age of 10, and his conversion happened in a rather unusual way. He was attending the anniversary celebration of the local Sunday school and uh, the person giving the talk told a story about John Newton who said that if he was employed to clean shoes, he would be the very best shoe cleaner in the village because he would learn to clean boots as if Jesus Christ was going to wear them. And in his autobiography, Samuel Chadwick said, I hated cleaning boots, especially my father's Wellington boots. Well, it just so happened that the Sunday school celebration took place on an extremely wet day, not unusual in England. And so the very next morning, the father's boots were just horrible. So Sam began with those first on the principle that it's uh, best to get the worst jobs out of the way first. And as he finished cleaning them in a kind of half-hearted way and he put them down, he was prompted. 
he was taken back to the words of that preacher. And he looked at the Wellingtons and he said, would they look clean enough to be worn by Jesus Christ? And he picked them up, he cleaned them a second time, and he said it was actually the most important thing he ever did in his life. Because he learned that day to do everything as to the Lord, not for men. And it literally revolutionized his life. And I wonder if our own lives might not be revolutionized if we applied the same principle in our own work and service. Let me just think about the practical applications with me for a moment. Because I think what Paul is saying is that it is possible to clean and tidy a room as if Jesus Christ was going to stay in it. It's possible to write an email or send a WhatsApp as if Jesus was going to read it. Uh, It's possible to serve a customer as if Jesus had just come into the shop to buy something. Possible to nurse a patient as if Jesus Christ were in that hospital bed. Possible, isn't it, to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. It's actually possible to do everything as to the Lord, not to men. And Paul then applies the same principle to masters or employers. Verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In other words, treat them as you would treat Christ. Now that surely is a revolutionary principle, isn't it? Absolutely revolutionary. The world doesn't do it. The world doesn't understand it. It can't see the bottom line in it. So why do it? Well, the reason is in verse 9, do not threaten them. What a word this is, by the way, to bullying bosses. There are many of them. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So the Christian employer knows that he too is a slave of Christ. And on the last day, he knows that Christ will reward all godly and obedient employers for the way they've treated their staff. And in the meantime, the Lord uses godly relationships at work as a means of bringing grace to a lost and to a dying world. Some of you know that's exactly how it was for me. Uh, I only heard and understood the gospel because somebody at work went out of their way to take me to a lunchtime service for businessmen where I heard and understood the gospel for the first time. I wouldn't be standing before you this morning if that person hadn't done it. So what about you? You see, there are people you know who are totally unprepared to meet Jesus. Last Sunday morning, we were thinking about the return of Jesus. So many of the people we know are totally unprepared to see him. They might actually be very hostile to Christian things, without actually ever having 
read the Bible for themselves. It is amazing, isn't it, how many people are hostile without actually knowing what the Bible says. It never ceases to amaze me. Well, God has put them across your path. So what are you going to do to draw them one step closer to Christ and to the good news of Christmas, which, after all, is actually the best news in the world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wherever we look, we see relationships that are broken with the result that people that we know and love are hurting and in pain. Thank you that you have not left us to figure out how to make our relationships work better. But in your kindness, you've given us both the pattern and the divine resources for all our relationships. So this week, Lord, help us to embrace this vital teaching for the good of your people and for the glory of Jesus. For we pray in his name.